Our scripture today comes from Micah chapter 3. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice, and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is the word of the Lord. I must tell you, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I couldn't help but think about it. I uh, began reading uh, Eric Metaxas' work on Luther. It's a, a significant work, and uh, so I got started, and then all kinds of things happened, and I stalled out. So I picked it up again this weekend, uh, reading just a few pages, and I got to these two pages where Metaxas describes Luther's experience in what has become known as the cloaca. I guess I'm saying that right. And I don't know if I've ever read two more profound pages outside of scripture on the incarnation. Uh, Some will appear in our Christmas Eve service, no doubt. Uh, But just, I'm blown away. I am blown away that the God of the universe would invade our space and would come and live among us. I'm blown away that he would make his home in our hearts. I, I know me, right? I know me. And I'm blown away that he would come into the refuse of the world. But he did. That is Christmas. That is what we celebrate. So that's a sermon for a couple weeks away. But I just had to share. Uh, This morning we're in Micah 3. And um, uh, when I began preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of a recent trip to Philadelphia that I made. I went up there to, to be with other folks, other ministry leaders from around the country who are working in Senegal as we are. So I went there to be with those leaders who are serving uh, in Senegal, their churches. And so there were leaders from 
from uh, uh, Seattle, Washington, and from Wisconsin, and from Connecticut and New York, and, and we were the only folks from, uh, from down south. And we met for a couple of days for strategy, to share, to discern next steps, and that kind of thing. One of the things that captured me as I was there uh, that I could just, I just couldn't and don't want to get over was the commitment of these people in the room. Most of them were not pastors. Most of them were not uh, ministry leaders in the sense of being paid to do what they do. Uh, there was one man there who was a real estate developer from Connecticut, obviously immensely successful. This man has given, his name is Steve, the last 15 years of his life he has traveled to Senegal, which isn't easy. He has traveled to Senegal every single year. He has served in a village in Senegal, uh, helping them to get some of the things that you and I consider to be simple and we take for granted every day. Running water, clean water, uh, some health care that they never receive. You see, there is a people group in Western Africa called the Wolof, the Wolof people. And as it goes, uh, the Wolof are very unreached people. They, as you would imagine, are Muslim, but Senegal remains an open country, so you're able to go to Senegal and share the gospel Steve has gone to his Wolof village for 15 years and yet to see a single convert. 15 years he has traveled there. 15 years he has given his time, his money, yet to see a single convert. Or Dave, who led our meeting, an attorney from Wisconsin, who has done the same 12 years yet to see a single convert in his village. But Dave has gone and led trips of his small church there in Wisconsin to see God do great work. Then there were these three African-American ladies. These three women are in, I would guess, between 65 and 70 years old. Uh, traveling to Senegal, as I said, isn't easy. And when we go, we camp out in the bush. Uh, we don't shower for days at a time. We eat strange food. And uh, it's, it's amazing what happens in and to our bodies by the time we get back. You wouldn't want me to describe it to you, some of the things we've experienced. These three ladies are part of a church of 30 people. 30 people outside Philadelphia, and they travel every single year and camp out in tents in the bush to share the gospel with the lost in Senegal. I sat in that room, said very little, listened a whole lot, humbled greatly by remarkable commitment of people to reach the lost. Their desire for the nations. I would say to you this morning that there are two statements in this passage that scream out. And if you write in your Bibles or you journal, these are the two statements you need to write. They're in the title of the sermon. But as for me, because of you. But as for me, 
because of you. Throughout your life, you will face a but as for me moment. And it could be this morning. I do not say that tritely. God may encounter you in a deeply personal way this morning that you never expected. And you will be called by him to make a but as for me decision. And then throughout your life at significant moments, perhaps retirement, accomplishments, your death, Folks will say, well, because of you, and they'll fill in the blank. That's life. And I just want to say to you this morning, if there is no but as for me, your because of you will be dismal. If there's never a time in your life when you say, here is the sand, I'm drawing the line in the sand, but as for me, then when it comes to those significant moments, because of you, they will fail. We discover in all of this a premise. Here it is, your attitude causes you to act and God to react. And so I have one goal this morning. One goal is to change your attitude if it needs it. Perhaps it's good. If it's good, it's good. But if it isn't, it isn't. So let's look at these three attitude adjusters. Then, number one, if you hate good and love evil, you will destroy people and God will not answer you. Attitude adjuster number one, if you hate good and love evil, I know it's a mouthful, you will destroy people and God will not answer you. Micah, as he opens three, addresses leaders of people. They were leaders of family and guess what their job was? They sat on the Supreme Court in a sense of Jerusalem. That's how the court was chosen, leaders of families. They sat on the Supreme Court and they heard cases and Micah says to the very people who are judging cases, you hate good and you love evil. Oh. They hate good and they love evil. How does someone get there? All right. You don't start out saying, hey, I think I'm going to hate good and I'm going to love evil. So I'm going to lean in on Kevin DeYoung's work on the conscience. You'll want to take notes. Kevin DeYoung takes the three phrases in the New Testament to describe the conscience, and he describes how we get from here to here. Let's look at the three. Number one, an evil conscience. An evil conscience is one that accuses us of wrongdoing, but we don't deal with the wrongdoing. Let me give you the verse, Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All right, how does one's conscience become evil? When you sin and you don't confess. Simple as that. When you sin and the spirit informs you or your conscience 
informs you that you have sinned. So let me pause for a moment because you may have a legitimate question. Jerry, what is the difference between the spirit and between the conscience? All of us has a conscience. All of us. We are born with it. How do we know? Uh, created in the image of God. We bear his conscience. Romans 1 says that there's something in us that screams God. Marred by sin, yes, but there still. That's our conscience. Now, that conscience is informed by your environment, how your parents raise you, how you are, uh, what you expose yourself to, media, multiple things affect the conscience. But the conscience is there. It is a gracious gift from God to guide us. Now, when you come to God by faith in Christ, that conscience, if we view it like a filter, gets filter number two, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, if something makes it through the conscience, right? Decision makes it through the conscience. Guess who's there to bounce it right back up and say, no, no, the Holy Spirit. That's his role. That's one of his jobs, to convict of sin that could make it through your conscience. So when that happens, and it will, and that decision comes, and you decide to do the wrong thing, that's called sin. When you do that, the Holy Spirit bounces it back to your conscience. When the Holy Spirit does that, you have a choice. At that moment, you have a choice. Will you confess that sin or not? If you don't, that conscience, if it's like a filter, starts to get dirty. It starts to get dirty. And that happens again and again until it becomes, as Hebrews describes, an evil conscience. An evil conscience. Well, an evil conscience undealt with becomes, secondly, a seared conscience. That's the next phrase. It's when we have ignored our conscience so many times, it doesn't work properly anymore. Let me read that for you. 1 Timothy 4.2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These are people who have lied so many times they don't know they're lying anymore. Right? They believe their own lies. They have told so many lies. You may have met someone like that. They believe their own lies. All right? That's not the end. That's a seared conscience if that conscience now is going to take more to interrupt, does it make sense to you now that if your conscience is, is clean and clear, all right, good, but if it becomes evil, then, then, then it becomes seared, the Holy Spirit is still working. He's not stopped, but it's much more difficult for you to hear, right? And that leads to a defiled conscience, to the pure Titus 1.15, all things are pure. That means clear conscience. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This kind of conscience celebrates what is evil and denigrates what is good. That's what a defiled conscience does. You say, Jerry, how does this work? I love DeYoung's example, can't improve on it. I'll share it with you. He says it's the girl who grows up in a Christian home, goes away to college, or the guy who grows up in a Christian home, goes away to college, and when he or she does, 
they realize that, oh, people party on the weekends. So they go to their first party, they do their first uh, wrong, sinful act related to that party, the Holy Spirit shoots the message, no, but next weekend there's another party. And they go again. And the conscience becomes so defiled that the person begins to think, when it comes to a weekend where there are no parties, I must be a real loser. Nobody has invited me to a party this weekend. What has happened? Their conscience has become defiled. They now call evil good and good evil. You see, we we tend to take this and and make it only for serial killers. No, this is for serial sinners. It is. What does it lead to? Look at verses 2 and 3. If you miss the gruesomeness of this, get it now. You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. That's gory and awful. So, so could I interject as to where I think I see this, I personally most prevalent today, worldwide, most prevalent today, probably sex trafficking. Probably. Our daughter served in Atlanta for a summer in sex trafficking, Atlanta being a major city where sex trafficking is practiced. What you may not realize is that as you go home this afternoon and you watch the super, watch the football, that it all leads up to the number one sex trafficking event in the world called the Super Bowl. You may not understand that for that Super Bowl weekend, since so many men are in town, young women are bussed in from all over the country to that city. And now at least in Southern Baptist life, there are mission teams who go into those cities. They partner with the police. All they do is go up and down the streets. And if they see a long line of men, they radio to the cops. The cops come in and they bust that sex business there. You may not realize that three years ago, never made the news There's a brothel in Marion. Young girl, high school girl, picked up from a party, drinking what she should not have been. Something put in that party. When she came to, she was tied to a bed at a home here in Marion. We're not talking about Charlotte. We're not talking about Asheville. Marion. Thankfully, No one had come into her yet. She screamed. When the woman running the brothel heard her screaming and knew it would hurt business, she ordered the two men who had picked her up to get her out of there. And so they did. 
dropped her off where she phoned her mother. This is prevalent. Calling good evil and evil good. Whoever would have thought, right? Like if you push rewind all the way back in our history as a nation, did any any of them ever think this would be us? No. No. Defiled conscience. A collective defiled conscience. Notice what happens in verse 4. These powerful family leaders Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. It's an interesting way to say it. It's an interesting way to say it. They have made their deeds evil. Why didn't Micah say, these things fascinate me. Why didn't Micah say they will do evil deeds? Those are two different statements. It's one thing to do evil deeds. It's another thing to make your deeds evil. Well, some of you may have heard that our kitchen is gone. It, it, it flooded unbeknownst to us for about three weeks, mold everywhere. And now, yesterday I was tearing cabinets out. But one of the things we discovered in the process underneath our 115-year-old house was a jar. It's just an old Kerr mason jar. You see that, Right? These things are kind of relics, and you know, you can get them now, but these things are kind of relics. Hannah actually saw it, and it says self-sealing on the front. And I have some good coffee here uh, that I brewed up this morning, and, and I'm kind of thirsty. You think I should drink out of this jar? Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's why we have kids' worship. All right. croissants. There's no hope. None. It's all your fault, Adam. Yeah, he owns it. All right. So, so, so you want to come drink out? I'm just kidding. All right. So why shouldn't I drink out of this jar? It's dirty. Anything I pour into it, however clean it may be, comes out how? That's what happens with a defiled conscience. This is it. Anything you pour into it comes out how? Dirty. That's why we we have different terms for this, don't we? Dirty old men. No, no. Defiled conscience. Right? Husband and wife can watch the same thing. He sees one thing. She sees another. Why? Defiled conscience. Two business people can enter the same deal. One has cheated all his life. He sees one thing. The other businessman sees another. Doesn't matter how much good coffee you pour into a dirty jar. It'll still be dirty. Um, number two if you hate truth and love money you will mislead people and God will not lead you this is addressed to prophets Um, 
Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Now, it wasn't abnormal for prophets to be paid. So this is not, uh, prophets were paid. This is not saying they shouldn't get paid. It's saying this, that the prophets give a good message to people who have money and they give a bad message to people who don't. Did you see that? Who cry peace when they have something to eat? Like you gave me food, uh, I declare peace over you, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Now this word peace, you and I hear it, and it, it honestly doesn't mean to us what it should. So let me, this word peace, it's in quotes in the ESV. And the reason it is, is because it's the word shalom. It's not just any word, it's the word shalom. So let me explain to you what this Hebrew word meant. It meant wholeness, only that could be gotten by God's blessing. Total fulfillment is shalom. Perfection of life and spirit, which surpasses success, which man alone, even under the best of circumstances, could achieve. It's it's something only God can give, shalom is. It's, it's man's realization under the blessing of God uh, that, that God has a plan and he's going to carry it out. So when a prophet would look at a person and say, shalom, that's a big deal. It's huge. It, it's pronouncing the biggest blessing. Uh, what do these prophets do? They give a false sense of security to those who pay them more. And a false sense of urgency to those who pay them less. Peace to you as you give me money. God's coming down on you as you do not. They either preach cheap grace or expensive guilt. Everybody is either going to heaven or everybody is going to hell. They preach horizontally, not vertically, meaning they don't get their message from God, but from the inclinations of others. They follow the nods of the crowd and the flow of the money. What will God do? Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. All right, God is saying anything that you ever got from me, I'm pulling back. You prophet, You'll never hear my voice again, God is saying. The sun shall go down on them. The day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced. The diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Eventually, there will be no word from God to a prophet who continues to speak good things because people give him good things. Let me apply this from the lofty level of prophets down to the everyday level of us. As a parent, if you have a strong-willed child or children, you must learn to speak truth when it will not be popular. Your parent, your children have many friends, but only you as parents. They do not need you to be their friends. I've said that before, and I must continue to say it. Why? 
because some of you buy into the idea that they need your friendship rather than your parenting. As a life group leader, there will be times you will have to say hard things with love. The health of this church is dependent largely on 50-some life group leaders who shepherd small groups of people through difficult times of life. We're in an elder selection process here at Grace. As you nominate elders, nominate those who will speak truth and love. It is desperately needed. Incidentally, this is why we're doing a worship service tonight. Number one, it's with other churches. And if you have more than one kid and they all get together and get along, you smile. So tonight, a bunch of us are getting together and we're going to get along. And God's going to smile. So that's a good thing. I've talked to some of these church leaders and they say our folks cannot wait to come join you. And we can't wait to have them, amen? Amen. We just can't wait. But you know, the second reason is this, is that one of the worst things you could have, listen to me, there's so many strong-willed people in this room, all right? And the reason I know is because I'm one of you. All right, so our church is full of strong-willed people, just gifted leaders, and I'm grateful, all right? But you don't like to hear the truth sometimes, right? The worst thing you can do is to have a counselor who, because of your strong will, is not going to bust into that and speak truth. And that is why that we do hope in Christ, and that is why we supplement counseling. People need biblical counsel. You need somebody to look at you and speak truth to you and speak into any sin that may be in your life. And guess what, life group leaders and parents and pastors and counselors, if we don't, God will not speak to us anymore. That's what it says. If I refuse, if I tell you what you want to hear, if I tickle your ears, I better get good at writing speeches because they will cease to be sermons. They will become speeches that will appease you, that you will enjoy, that will walk out of here and you will, as you leave, go, that was a nice talk. Oh, that made me feel so good. Oh, that was so wonderfully and elegantly spoken. And once you do that, you can say nice things all the way to hell. And I'll get paid wonderfully. You'll go to hell and everything will be okay. No, it won't. It never will. It never will. And what I must say to you is that this week I was awakened from my sleep in a torment over you. I do not exaggerate in any way. And it took me 24 hours to get the torment out of my mind. I did not ask for this. It is God's high and holy call that I 
carry a burden and speak truth in love and, and say things that will not be popular to you, but will be truth. And then to walk with you through some of the darkest, most difficult days of your lives. Third, attitude adjuster, if you hate justice and love corruption, you will use people and God will crush you. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, there it is, and make crooked all that is straight. Oh, this is so graphic. Who builds Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house that would it hide. What do these people do? This is a defiled conscience. They detest justice. And the things that are straight, they make crooked, they pervert them. How do they do it? Well, you may not know, but Micah speaks during one of the most prosperous times of Israel. It's just post-Solomon. Israel experienced more peace under Solomon than they have till this day. Under him, the last Last time of incredible peace in Israel was under Solomon. All the borders were in full where they ought to be. And then the people got proud. We, we just do that sometimes. And they got proud and they built and then they enslaved one another. And they, they built these beautiful buildings with the blood of their brothers and sisters. Ah. A hundred years later, Jeremiah would fill in the blanks of what Micah began. Many commentators and scholars believe that Jeremiah was reading Micah when he wrote this in 22. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. We have in this place many employers. Many of you employ others. I ask you a simple question. Two, number one, do you love them? Number two, do you pay them well? Number one, do you love them? You say, Jerry, I'm not called to love my employees. If you're a believer, you are. Do you? Do you? Do you love them with the love of Christ? Number two, do you pay them well? Do they get fair wages for fair work? There are two statements that stand out to me, but as for me and because of you, look at verse eight, but as for me, I am filled with power. Micah says, you better be with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And then verse 12, 
Therefore, because of you, these people with a defiled conscience, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, that's the temple mount, a wooded height. My question to you this morning is this. What will be your but ask for me declaration? What will it be? And so I want to end just quickly here. Two men. Two men. Uh, I read last year, maybe earlier this year, I think I finished it earlier this year, Metaxas' work on Wilberforce. It's called Amazing Grace. You ought to read that. In the late 1700s, when Wilberforce was a teenager, English traders raided the African coast on the Gulf of Guinea, captured between 35,000 and 50,000 Africans a year, shipped them across the Atlantic, and sold them into slavery. It was a profitable business. I have, off the coast of Africa, stood there on the door of a slave house where those slaves last saw their homeland. Those who are giving tours describe how because so many of these Africans jumped to their death, those waters became infested with sharks who came to eat them. By the late 1700s, the economics of slavery were so entrenched that only a handful of people thought anything could be done about it, and one of them was William Wilberforce. Now, Wilberforce grew up wealthy. He was from a wealthy, aristocratic English family, but they were not believers. But there were some ragtag guys. Their last names were Wesley. They started some movement uh, called Methodism, and Wilberforce had this moment of deep despair over his life. And he said it was in that moment of deep despair that he came to faith. His family despised it for him. You see, Methodists were not like the Church of England. They, you know, they didn't do things normal. It, they, they were just ragtag group of people. And so they did not like at all his affiliation. He later admitted the first years in Parliament, I did nothing, nothing to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. But he began to reflect deeply on his life, which led to a period of intense sorrow. I quote, I am sure that no human creature could suffer more than I did for some months, he later wrote. His unnatural gloom lifted on Easter of 1786, quote, amidst the general chorus with which all nature seems on such a morning to be swelling the song of praise and thanksgiving. He had experienced a spiritual rebirth. So he became friends with William Pitt, who led the parliament at the time, and together he tried. This is how many times he introduced slavery legislation. 1789, 91, 92, 93, 97, 98, 99, 1804, and 1805. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was ostracized. He was called all kinds of names. He was told it will not only did he do that, 
He became a great philanthropist, giving away 25% of his wealth, of his annual income, 25% of it away to the poor. He fought on behalf of chimney sweeps, single mothers, Sunday schools, orphans, and juvenile delinquents. He was their champion. Not only that, it may surprise you that England was an awful place at the time. Gruesome practices. It was Wilberforce who led to the ethical treatment of even animal life in the Reformation of Manners as it was called in England. And finally, in 1807, the parliament voted to abolish slavery. Wilberforce was old, but he had this moment, didn't he? But as for me, teenagers, what will that be for you? Singles, what will that be for you? Well, in the not so recent, in the very recent history, let me bring up somebody else, Bernie Madoff. If you watch any news, you know that uh, in 2009, he was sentenced to 150 years in prison. His investors lost $50 billion because of him. So how did he do it? Well, he promised low risk and high returns, and they should have known better, no doubt. That does not exist, right? But it was an old-timey Ponzi scheme. How did it work? All right, so let's say all of you are Madoff investors, right? So he's promised you 10 to 13%, which is what he promised. So he's promised you that. But he knows his money isn't making 10 to 13%. So your money isn't earning that. How does he get it? He goes to you. You are would-be investors and he engages you. And he gets you on board. So you bring your collective lumps of money, right? Maybe 100,000, 500,000, a million dollars. You bring all that. Then he takes from your lump of money and pays you your returns. Does that make sense? So if you're earning five, but he's promised 10, he's got to get the other five from somewhere. He gets it from their principal and pays you. He did that until it collapsed and he could no longer get enough new investors to pay the old and it all fell apart. So I just, I wonder, these are two men wealthy. I, I could just imagine William Wilberforce, but as for me, he said, I will not stand idly by while men enslave other men. And then we would say, because of you, slavery came to an end in Great Britain. Bernie Madoff, but as for me, I will make all the money I can at the expense of others. That was his, but as for me. And we would say, because of you, hundreds of families lost their retirement. Your children will know what it means to lie, cheat, and steal. Your wife will experience disappointment and loneliness. Your coworkers will write you off as another cheat and liar. So here's what I want you to do. Take your journal right now and we'll be done. Your notes, whatever you're taking notes on. 
and right, but as for me. What is it? What is it? What is it today, right now, but as for me? What is the line in the sand you need to draw? That will ultimately result in somebody saying to you, perhaps, in this life, because of you. Because of you. just want to thank you. I just want to say because of you and they'll finish that sentence. Now, write this down. Only with God's power. That's what Micah said. But as for me, I am full of power. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Only with God's power can you do it. So, Jerry, how so? Well, I would point you as we finish to the one who ultimately fulfilled, but as for me. Luke 4, 17 through 19, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. Picture this. They give him Isaiah, the scroll. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. (laughs) Aren't you glad? Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Amen? Amen? Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If Jesus needed the spirit of the Lord on him, then how much more do you and I need the spirit of the Lord in order to say, but ask for me, and for others later to say, because of you, So it would only be the Holy Spirit indwelling you, living in you, that you will be able to say, but ask for me. And others will say, because of you. Let me pray for us. Lord, it's been good to be here. Father, it's been a quiet morning of teaching. It has been convicting Father, I pray right now, O Lord, for those whose consciences are defiled, whose consciences are seared, 
Lord, whose consciences are simply at that beginning point. I pray that perhaps the boldness with which you have commanded me to speak has broken through. And I pray for repentance for that person to walk in to work tomorrow, back into their home this afternoon, to school, on their hall in their dorm, a new man, a new woman, with a definitive, but as for me, declaration. And Father, any because of yous, I mean this, we mean this, we mean this, any of those, we will offer up as an aroma of praise to you. Because it is only because of the Spirit in us that we can make a but as for me declaration. Finally, Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted above all. You are the reason that we sing about an old holy night. You are the reason we give time and money that we travel to Africa and Ecuador and we make sure people right here have good counseling. You're the reason churches come together tonight. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for opening the scroll and declaring yourself to be the Messiah. We love you. One day we'll see you. Some days I'll long for that. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.